0: jason x to police academy 6 this is sequel cast and they are past at following a franchise until the bitter end this is sequel cast and your host has that i inform you that the show will now begin hello and welcome to sequel cast to a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time I'm Matt Bradley Shurgy. With me is William Thrasher.
1: Hello, fellow travelers.
0: Yes, we're going a... I was going to say a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but that's the wrong franchise. That's way off. Yeah.
1: We're going come with us now uh, on a journey through time and space.
0: Next time, Sam Beckett might not make it home alive. Um,
1: Green Acres is the place
0: for me. Now, what we're talking about is... Uh, uh, a movie based on a TV series that features uh, Babylon 5's Mr. Spock. No, it's a Star Trek Beyond is what we're talking about. Every once in a while in Sequel Cast 2, we do what we like to call a gap episode because uh, back in the original Sequel Cast series, we covered some franchises that have had sequels since then. And in this case, uh, a long time ago, we did Star Trek all the way from the original motion picture all the way until uh, Into Darkness. Uh, back in 2013, and uh, they came out with a new one since then, so we're going to do one of these Gap episodes to fill the gap. And I, I've had a lot of listeners ask, Matt, how can I get the old episodes of the sequel cast? And uh, I'm going to tell you to keep your pants on. We're working on uh, some sort of a, a solution for that, where they'll be available um, online for a, uh, for a fair
1: price. We're working on a platform to grow our content and shift our paradigm.
0: Uh, That's some more professional way to put it. Thank you, Thrasher. So, Star Trek Beyond came out in uh, 2016. It's the third of the you know current series of Star Trek films. Directed by Justin Lin, produced by J.J. Abrams, Roberto Orci, Lindsay Weber, and Justin Lin. Written by Simon Pegg and Doug Young. Uh, based, of course, on the Star Trek TV show by Gene Roddenberry. Starring John Cho, Simon Pegg, Chris Pine, Zachary Kinto, Zoe Saldana, Carl Urban, Anton Yelchin, and Ildris Elba is the bad guy in this one. Michael Giacchino, again, does the music. Cinematography, Stephen F. Winden. It is edited by Greg Diaria, Dylan Highsmith, Kelly Matsumoto, and Stephen Sprunn. Um, this came out in uh, the United States on July 22, 2016. Off, uh, According to Box Office Mojo, off a budget of $185 million. worldwide, it made $343 million, which um, is not great that's more than the budget but it's not you know like uh, avengers money
1: you know looking looking this over we are we are recording this almost on the one year anniversary of this film's u.s release
0: wow i guess you're right yeah um, this movie feels
1: like it came out two or more years ago for whatever it? reason yeah well,
0: it was delayed for a while i think we'll, we'll get into that after briefly describing the plot um, and it, this movie worldwide, uh, grossed over a hundred million less than Star Trek Into Darkness.
1: Hmm. But that might explain why we don't already have a sequel announced.
0: They announced a sequel, I think, Well, Star Trek, uh, we'll get into that, but, um, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's kind of odd. I mean, this movie even made a little bit less than the, uh, the sort of Star Trek reboot in, uh, 2009. So... It, it, it wasn't a flop by any means but it just didn't make um it, as much money as they wanted but what movie really does that's my forced way of moving into another topic um before we talk about the plot of Star trek beyond Thrasher did you see this in the theater how did you see this the first time around
1: no i didn't uh i I was kind of very torn when it came out because on the one hand i i am a tremendous Star trek fan but on the other hand i felt i felt kind of let down um with star trek into darkness and so i was really mm-hmm. on the fence about whether i was going to see this in theaters i ended up not seeing it in theaters i saw it when it was released to a uh, streaming service uh very early in the year and then i rewatched oh, it again uh, for this podcast and i live tweeted it which was very very fun i did that li- uh, last week so if anyone wants to timestamp when we recorded this just look for my star trek beyond live tweets
0: Um, Star Trek Beyond, my wife and I saw in the theater, we're big um, Star Trek fans. Although, me saying that, I haven't seen as much of the TV series as I would have liked. It's taken us years to almost, on and off, get through Next Generation. Uh, I confess to not seeing all the episodes of um, the original series or the other series. But, so, uh, I would say Next Generation is what I've seen the most of the TV shows. But, yeah, Star Trek Beyond, we saw in the theater, I felt sort of... Mixed about it. It was strange seeing it too, because uh, by the time it had came out, um, unfortunately, actor uh, Anton Yelchin, who played Chekhov in these movies, uh, had died. Uh, so, and that was very,
1: very close started, to the passing. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Well, first that he was so you know he he was so young and vibrant, but then it came so close to the passing of Leonard Nimoy, and both both of their passings hang over this film.
0: That's, that's right, and it's something you can't, um, I believe it gets, they get some sort of a, Yelchin gets a dedication, but yeah, it's, so it, it gave the whole movie kind of a weird feel going into it, and I rewatched it to prep for the show, um, and yeah, I thought the marketing for this movie wasn't great, even that, I mean, let's talk about that title, Star Trek Beyond. Beyond what? Right. I mean, it's like Batman Forever. It's a nonsensical title.
1: You could give that title to any Star Trek movie. I I, I wish this series had gone back to titles that had a bit more weight, like the original series, like The Wrath of Khan and The Voyage Home. Those are memorable titles that mean something. Beyond just feels like they needed a word, a a cool marketing buzzword to put (laughs) at at the end of the title. And though
0: come to think of it, the previous Star Trek film Into Darkness. I mean, what does Into Darkness mean? Well, what that was supposed
1: to be a whole sentence. Like start you like we're star trekking into a darkness. It wasn't like Star Trek colon Into Darkness. What do
0: you think this? What if they would have called it Star Trekking?
1: That would be worse. That would be that would make yeah. it seem like a parody. <laughs> or a movie I, about celebrities hiking. So that could be a reality show hosted by William Shatner. That's right. Still kicking it. He he,
0: uh, he is. He's a very um, hardworking man. Um, <laughs> so the the really quick the, the overall plot of this film is we're three years into the mission of the USS Enterprise, and uh, after sort of a quick you know James Bond style opening mission, which we'll get into more detail later. Uh, the USS Enterprise, it looks like they're going for shore leave. At well, shore leave a, and a
1: retrofit.
0: Yes. A resupply the, mission. Resupply, you know, get the ship all tuned up. And they're going to to Yorktown, which is a, a brand new sparkly utopian sort of space station society thing with a lot of concentric um, circles in there. It, it looks very white, very clinical. Um, you know, look looks pretty. Everyone's nice and happy,
1: blah, blah, blah. And then they they find an escape pod drifting nearby.
0: That's right, in Star Trek means Star Trek, they go to uh, to investigate, and uh, they have a new occupant on the ship Kalara, and uh, she says, oh, one of her ship, you know, her home ship is uh, stranded on a, a nebula nearby where the pod drifted out, and when they go in there, the Enterprise is ambushed by these, you know, a, a horde of um, these sort of insect-like, teeny tiny ships and um as tends to happen in a lot of these star trek movies the enterprise crashes
1: in pieces
0: in pieces yes it's a very intense uh
1: sequence but they discover there's this alien reptile man named crawl who has some sort of grudge against the federation and everything that's happening turns out to be a master plan by crawl to get a hold of a super weapon that he can use to tear out the federation's heart
0: Right, and that and that's a an overall very brief plot, of um of the film. Uh, before we get into it in a bit more detail, um, you know, most of the cast returns from the the other Star Trek, uh, newer Star Trek films. But I want to talk about two new cast members we have here. One is Sophia Butella who plays Jayla. Um, Gen- what do you think of her in this picture? I, I like her makeup; it's very uh, distinct.
1: No, it's good makeup. It's a good character. I could watch a whole movie that's just a spin-off about her doing whatever it is she's gonna do uh, in in the fed, with the Federation because she does she does survive this movie and does at the end get accepted to the Federation. She gets pre accepted to the Federation Academy if she wants it, uh, and like I overall, I really really liked her uh, as as a character. That being said. I, I will talk about the specific scene in particular, but as the movie progresses, there are these kind of f- f- Mary Sue type elements that start entering the character. She never reaches full on Mary Sue, which, which I like. That is a tremendous amount of restraint uh, that the writers and director showed. But... Uh... I guess I guess I'll talk about those moments more when they happen, but she's she's a fun, spunky young character and we don't often see we don't often see sort of practical characters like her on Star Trek. You know, she she's not from a super high-tech civilization. She's had to learn to work with the limited resources she has and it really makes it really makes her character endearing, including the affectation that she really really likes 20 20th century hip-hop music.
0: Yeah, um, I you know noticed this actress Sophia Patella, in Kingsman's Secret Service. She plays one of the bad guys mm. in it, and um, and since then, you know, she played the titular role in the Tom Cruise movie The Mummy, which uh, I, I have yet to see that, but I, I think she does a good job. It also gives um, she gets to do a lot of business with uh, Scotty, which is nice.
1: Yeah, they play off of each other really well, and that's one thing this movie does super well. It's very, at the end of the first act, when the Enterprise gets, gets torn up, uh, all the casts get divided up into, into pairs, and those pairings are so good, and we get to see some amazing character interplay.
0: Yeah, it's a real smart way to, to shake things up. There are also, uh, other new cast member here is Idris Elba, is Crawl. And, um, unfortunately, there's so much makeup on him and the voices deepen so much, it could have been any actor, really. I think Idris is a very good actor, but you don't get to see that here.
1: Well, he, so, um, so much of his performance, because he's a wonderfully emotive actor, but so much of his sure, performance yeah. is buried under that makeup and the shifting accent that he has.
0: That's right. It's... Um, it makes you wonder why they they went with an actor like that, or maybe why they, they could have done the the makeup to make something more expressive in the face of the eyes. It's just so... Uh, gee, I, th- I think the makeup is a bit overdone. It does look like something that could have been on one of the TV shows, but it's just... It, it needs a little bit more of a human element to it, I think. And by the time we'll get that in the movie, it's far too late.
1: Well, it's very reminiscent of, the, of some of the Dominion... Uh, those Dominion reptiles mm, in right. Space Nine. Um, I think... Well, you know, we we talked about how this movie was was delayed. I I'm wondering, do you think? Do you do you do you think that delay was part of part of it was implementing the reveal of his character?
0: No, and um. Oh, do you have details a, on the delay? I I do have some details about why there was a delay. Uh, I do want to. Say that um, when I saw the makeup for uh, the villain in this movie, it reminded me a lot of, now I can't find the character's name, of um, one of the characters on Babylon 5.
1: Oh, uh, Jakar? Jakar, yes. Well, well, it's to to an extent in, in the sense that it's kind of a, rep, a reptilian motif.
0: Right, I mean, looking at it now, they actually don't look as much alike as I would have thought. There's something about the manner of the character and... Reminded me of Jakar from Babylon Five.
1: Now, now that that I can see, they're both prone. They're both prone to speechifying. Yes, <laughs> several times, uh, as a matter of fact. Hey, fun so, fact: uh, uh, I campaigned. I led a campaign to get Peter Jurassic, the actor who played Lando on Babylon Five, to speak at my high school graduation because he's from our hometown. But more from my hometown. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Scheduling conflicts? Uh, no, nobody nobody took us seriously, and so they got the same guy from the Navy who gives the commencement speech every year. Nah. Uh, yeah, you,
0: you mentioned, you know, why was this movie delayed? Because um, I don't think we mentioned this, but uh, there's been a bit of far too many years for my liking between the recent Star Trek films that when they sort of rebooted it with the younger, you know, um, classic crew of the Enterprise with Kirk and Spock and so forth, that movie just called Star Trek, confusingly, uh, 2009, and then Into Darkness was uh, 2013, four years later, and this one was 2016, which is three years later. Uh, this movie is supposed to come out sooner than it did, and um, we had, you know, production issues with the um, script. So, I mean, originally, it, it, it was never J.J. Uh, Abrams' intention to direct this film because he was busy doing Star Wars Episode Seven, The Force Awakens. Fair enough. However, um, at the time, initially, it was announced that uh, one of the writers of the scripts for the earlier movies, Roberto Orchi, was going to uh, direct the film. Oh. And then it was um, his his script. There was not a whole lot of information on it, but. Um, Paramount didn't like it. They basically, you know, and and part of the reason from what I understand is it is the, um, how do I put this? They wanted Star Trek to have more of an international appeal Mm -hmm. to make more money uh, for this movie. And his script, uh, from what I could find out from my research, uh, was considered, like, too nerdy. It would have involved... I think some element of time travel, and uh, William Shatner was supposed to be in it as old Kirk, somehow. Oh, damn.
1: Right. I, part of me would really like to see Shatner as old Kirk. I I, I wish there was a bit of that.
0: And I, I think, you know, it actually, Shatner as old Kirk was supposed to be in the Star Trek film from 2009, but it would have been a very small part. And Shatner said he wasn't going to be in a Star Trek film unless the part was... Um, uh, a big role. A, me- a, meat ro- a meaty role, exactly. Because um, I think in retrospect, he regretted Kirk being killed in Star Trek Generations. And of course, with, with time travel and alternate universes and whatever, you could think of some excuse for old Kirk. Um, but so, Orchie, they decided to not go with his script. And when that was the case, he decided, I don't want to direct it. So then they hired on uh, Simon Pegg and Doug Young to redo the screenplay. And, um, yeah, this quote from Simon Pegg in the old script is, they were worried it might have been too Star Trekky, And they were told to make a movie that was more inclusive and uh, make a movie that was more um, action-y. To try and get people to go to it that wouldn't normally go to a Star Trek film.
1: Now, I can understand them wanting to make it more actiony. and that is certainly what we've got. But... I can't think of a franchise more diverse than Star Trek, although the Marvel movie franchises are getting there. What do you mean by diverse? You mean in... Well, just like in terms of, of the the variety of, of, of people cast. I'm, I'm mm. assuming that's mm. what they meant, but I guess I could be wrong. I don't necessarily know how they're meaning diversity as far as the Hollywood executive speak goes. Sure, uh, that's a good point. Um I think also, you think about what happens
0: in the different Star Trek films, you know, tonally, some of them are quite different from each other. It's oh, not yeah. like, um, oh, you know, it's not like a James Bond movie where you pretty much know what you're going to get every time. And I think while there is more action and, you know, that the they went with Justin Lin as the director who got his start doing a um you know one of his early films was a an Asian crime film uh, better luck uh, tomorrow and later he did a lot of the fast and furious um movies including uh, Tokyo Drift you well
1: i i think he did a good job directing this
0: me too i think for once the action looked um It was like more uh, involved and more intense, which, which especially works good when the Enterprise is attacked in the beginning.
1: Well, he does. He does some great things taking advantage of the fact that this is set in outer space and that there's no defined up, down, left or right. Uh, so there's some really neat camera angles when they were in outer space. I love that beauty shot of the ship traveling at, at full warp where, where you see space rippling around the ship. Mm, mm. It's a really neat sort of Starbo effect. Um, the, you know, the, the, the scene where the, where the, the swarm ships attack the enterprise, you know, It's wonderfully, wonderfully kinetic. You feel every impact. So he, he definitely, definitely, you, he, he made the action in this film something special
0: right I think you know compared to a, a Star Trek film that didn't really have good action I, I think of Star Trek nemesis of a sequence where the crew is um, on dune buggies oh yeah they' being shot at where it just feels kind of cheap not especially Star Trekky and, and a lot of you know clumsy close-ups of the actors bouncing around but yeah here the action is uh, is really polished the effects are, are quite quite good um, so let's move on. To actually, you know, talk about the film. So, what what do you think about the, the sort of opening uh, opening mission we get here? Sort of much like in the second film, we're kind of thrown into what would have been the end of a TV episode.
1: Yeah, and i i i kind of wish that this was the whole movie. Uh, like, like there's, you know, stakes are established. We get some interesting aliens. They're in, they're having a conflict with another group of aliens. And, you know, Kirk is, is doing his damnedest to help bring peace between them. I think that's a good story with good stakes and it's all, you know, Kirk has been, the Federation has trusted Kirk to bring this peace offering to these, these sort of reptile rhinoceros dinosaur aliens. Um, and there's a series of escalating cultural misunderstandings during this diplomatic mission because the 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 peace offering is part of a weapon, and by the tradition of the other aliens, that is how you offer peace. You dismantle the weapon and trust your enemy with a part of it, uh, but these dinosaur guys don't get that they just will see the worst in everything uh and eventually get so frustrated that they just all attack kirk and that's when we get something that i don't like the joke that these what you think are giant imposing aliens are in fact only about a foot tall
0: right i mean so the aliens are cg which i I should be realistic here they use cgs used all the time but part of what i associate with star trek uh partially because the series has been on for so long is people with wonderful prosthetics on
1: Yep. Yep. For aliens, which
0: we do get a lot of, you know, uh, with the villain and and, uh, Sophia Batella in in the film and seeing a CG alien right off the bat struck me as Ron. But right. You get it into sort of like a um, like a Tribbles joke where these cute (laughs) little aliens are hopping around him and they have this deep voice and they look sort of threatening, but they're only like an inch, a few inches tall. Well, it's it's a scale joke that's
1: right out of the Men in Black series. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's a good point it's like sort it's of a,
1: like that what is it the ball yeah, from yeah or, or, or like too. or like the in men in black there's there's always jokes about things that you think are big are actually small and think that do things that you think are small are actually big it it feels so out of place in this film even though this is supposed to be a lighter breezier take on star trek the the joke seems totally divorced from everything else you're gonna see
0: Right, and I, I don't think it's as good as an opening as um, we mentioned Star Trek Into Darkness earlier. I don't think that's a great film, but I think the beginning of Star Trek Into Darkness is is quite exciting. Where they're on this sort of primitive planet with very lush, um, uh, very colorful landscape, and Spock is in the middle of a volcano uh, trying to set something off, and the Enterprise is underwater. Like it was, uh, they spent more time in the opening mission, and it was. Pretty exciting. And this one, they seem, you know, hell-bent on moving into the main story. And it's not linked enough into the main story. And we don't have any... Concept of what these aliens are. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Thrasher. They should have spent more time on this opening part because it feels like such an afterthought. Like, well, you might have all just have started it on the ship.
1: Well, the Kirk other and, and the uh, other thing, like, it seems like it's sort of f- yeah. forced in to open with some action, but the especially since the real intro of the story is very, very quiet and brooding with Kirk's voiceover. But the other thing that that really kills me about it is that so. All I can think of throughout the rest of the movie is, well, what happened? Did these two species go to war with each other again? Did the mission fail? Is Kirk in trouble? Yeah. But it's completely forgotten. It is of absolutely no consequence, except that it introduces the MacGuffin.
0: That's right, which is its ultimate point. Uh, but before we get the Enterprise landing in the Yorktown, we get a really nice scene with uh, Kirk and Bones.
1: Yeah, we we get Kirk's voiceover kind of talking about the, the five year mission, but yeah, I really I really love that interplay between between Kirk and Bones where uh as as we know from the first film, uh you know, Kirk's father was a Starfleet captain, and he died on a mission. Uh and it's Kirk's birthday, uh, much like in you know Wrath of Khan and he is now a year older than his father was when his father died on a mission so he's really starting to grapple with you know what is life what is what is my purpose who you know i i didn't join starfleet for noble reasons like my father why why am i here it's really great and and i love him sharing a drink with bones Although it does bring up a good a point because Bones, you know, says, "Oh well, that that that's not that's not good." I found this brandy in Chekov's locker. So does that mean Bones just paws through people's lockers looking for booze?
0: It could be. I mean, there is a lot in the original series of of Bones drinking.
1: Uh, well, no, when Scotty shore was, leave. Scotty was the big drinker. I mean, yes, Bones did drink, but Scotty was the big drinker. But like him him going through someone's private locker, which is presumably in their quarters to get booze. He's either got to be a raging alcoholic or the quadrant's biggest dick. That seems more like a Kirk move in retrospect. Yeah, well, that's something I noticed <laughs> is that Kirk isn't all that quirky in this introduction because there's that scene where he opens his closet and it's just all these identical uniforms. You know, Kirk would have some lounge wear. I, I really, I this the film series seems to have forgotten the whole Lothario angle on Kirk, which I, I wish was present in some way.
0: Well, they're trying to illustrate that Kirk is tired. I mean, I, I groaned at the line in the voiceover at the beginning where he says his life is feeling episodic. Come on. Mm. <laughs> the show is a TV show with episodes. But the um, it, it, it's almost reminded me of what Kirk is like in the beginning of the movie The Wrath of Khan.
1: Yeah, I think I think they're trying to achieve the same emotional gravitas. And while Except
0: the problem is that Chris Pine isn't as old as Shatner. was. you know, oh, he doesn't yeah. look as old. He's not wearing glasses. You know, there's.
1: Well, the other the other yeah. thing is, but I think it's a good idea to tie this to the death of his father in the first film. But it's something that's sort of set up and, and doesn't play out like the, the this part sure. of his backstory is just forgotten after this intro. It feels like something from a different movie. Yeah, yeah, and, and it could come back because as—do you mind if we, if we jump ahead to a big reveal from the end? No, go ahead. So so it turns out Crawl is in fact a Starfleet captain from the very, very early years of Starfleet um, who got stranded and got a hold of this alien technology that mutated him into the monster that we see in this film. Like Right then and there, we have an old Starfleet captain who should have died, who could have been part of Kirk's emotional journey, but that never Mm. comes up.
0: Right. It it could have used another draft or two of a script maybe. I I don't know what it is, but it it does feel much like the, the intro sequence with the tiny little aliens. It feels like something that ultimately isn't needed and it, it it's a nice um it's a nice scene i mean i think that that bit of dialogue between kirk and uh bones about kirk's father is one of my favorite moments in the movie but it's not right for this movie
1: and i, and I also like the little touch that there's a third glass at the table for kirk's father
0: yeah that that's a sweet moment um how is uh, what do you think about yorktown
1: i i love the design it's this amazing look i'll, I'll even go so far it, it is a pornographic level of design for this structure Isn't it? it's this yeah. giant glass well i i i initially say say glass sphere but the thing is probably built out of force fields based around things we see later but it's full of all these like massive bands that have uh skyscrapers towers parks and lakes on the inside it's a it's probably the best mega structure we have ever seen rendered on film. Uh, I think it's widely impractical and improbable and they try to justify it you know by you know bones raises the question why build this massive space station in the middle of nowhere when you could just build a colony on a planet and you know bones has, or <laughs> spock has that line about how well we can't show favoritism to any favorite planet by putting putting our deep space exploration outpost there but you don't have to put it on a planet that's already a member find an m-class planet that's near the frontier and just put it there but it's so gorgeous. It is it is great. It's it it's all the best aspects of the Citadel from Mass Effect. And it and as yeah, crazy right. as the design is, it nevertheless always feels real to me.
0: And I, I do enjoy how we have the um I guess, like you said, all the detail. We see sort of like there's a subway system that goes through it, but it's sort of looped loops like a roller coaster. There's
1: shuttlecraft and personal cars. There's site-to-site transporter booths.
0: Right. It feels um, lived in, which you don't always get on these uh, sort of Star Trek planets. I I keep on thinking of, uh, in Star Trek, the motion picture, the very first one where you go to um, Starfleet Academy is on San Francisco, and it's not especially well populated. It's just like one set, but this feels like a real lived-in uh, lived-in world. And, um, and there's children.
1: There's children, children and old people, yes. which you don't normally see unless the story is specifically about children or old people.
0: Right. I mean, on, on Next Generation in particular, you would sometimes see children and old people walk around the, the ship, but not typically. You're right. That was just not... You and, know, lest we forget, it's a whole big uh, hundreds of people on the Enterprise.
1: Yeah, and, and we do get and we do get some nice character moments there, uh, including like we we learn that uh, we learned that Mister Sulu has a family. He has a husband and a daughter living on the Yorktown. Although I yeah. uh, although that was that was a decision that George Takei, the original uh, the original actor who portrayed Sulu, was critical of. Do you do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Um, I mean, that's George Takei's right to be critical of something if he wants to. It's his opinion. I, I disagree with him. I mean, I think you're, you're trying to make the, the larger point that Star Trek is inclusive. And in the, um, I was going to say current, I don't know. I mean, I timeline? look at, yeah, in the current timeline or in the current, I'm thinking more like political climate in real life, um. You just wanna prove that the Enterprise is inclusive to, to everybody and everything. I mean, there is a I was reading there is a scene filmed of Sulu kissing his husband that they cut out of the movie. That was a real quick thing that would have been a nice moment to include. It's it's not it's like a half a second thing in the movie. Like if you weren't paying attention you might even miss it. It's not like it's a, a big part of the plot and um it's an alternate timeline. I mean, if Sulu is gay, like so what? It could have been
1: could have been anyone well i i think i think that's part of the problem though because the original the original series establishes that that sulu is is heterosexual uh and and, and don't get me wrong though i i i think you know it, it is high time star trek has had an openly gay character right uh, yeah and, and you know that i i think the closest they ever came to that is they hint at it in deep space nine with the character of dax but even then that's le- that's more about gender because Dax, Dax is a character that has lived as both a man and a woman in various points uh, be- because of the nature of the symbiote but because we're dealing with an alternate timeline because of what's established with time travel in the first movie, it does create this problem where it makes Sulu being gay seem like a personal choice Sulu has made and that something in this alternate timeline made him decide, you know what I'm attracted to guys now and that's not how it works so you would rather, it would have been
0: cleaner, in other words, for it to just be a different character?
1: I think so, yeah. They, they, sh- they, sh- they should have taken a character that, that never really had any romantic plots or subplots in the original series and, and, and and yeah, use that character.
0: This might have been a bit much, but I would have most like to have seen uh, when Captain Sulu uh, reaches over and embraces his husband to say something like,
1: Oh my... That would have been way too on the nose. Yeah, Especially that like "oh my" is something that George Takei <laughs> says and says very well. Sure, but it's not something Sulu would say.
0: But I, I just can't think of George Takei and then within that Captain Sulu without thinking of "oh my" and how that's been a, a popular thing George Takei said on the Howard Stern show several times.
1: Well, well, that was that was based. If I remember correctly, that was based on Billy West's impression. And, and like, oh, that and makes sense. When Takay yeah. would comment on this, look, you, you always, whenever you impersonate me, you always say, oh my. But I never said, oh my. But of course, now that's his catchphrase, is just, oh my. Yeah, when In a very did the, arch way.
0: Yeah, when uh, he did some of the, oh, there, he was on a Super Bowl commercial for something and he said, oh my. Um, there's a very good bit on the Howard Stern show where Billy West calls in and pretends he's uh, George Takay's son. Oh, wow. <laughs> He's like, no, no, son, don't do that. Oh, yes, father. It, it was just a pretty <laughs> funny moment. Um,
1: that, that sounds like a sitcom we would have created in college about TK and his son <laughs> being roommates and giving each other life <laughs> advice. That's right.
0: Now, you see here. Yeah, no. I, we,
1: I, we, I, and we would have called it Apartment TK.
0: <laughs> I, that's, that sounds good to me. Yeah. Um, it's too early for me to do improv as of this recording. Oh
1: no problem. So I, I'm, I'm high yeah. on coffee right now and lack of sleep from last night. But this is when this is when uh, you know Kirk is offered a potential posting as the like chief was a chief administrator or commanding officer of Yorktown.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, it's more of like an executive administrative
1: role, and, and, and he's considering it because uh, you know part of him does see. It seems to imply part of him wants to settle down and start a family, but part of him also still wants to be. in the captain's chair of a ship but this is when this uh alien escape pod drifts near the yorktown uh and the occupant is rescued there's some nice bit with the bits with the universal translator and we get the real inciting incident of this film i hate to say this but
0: i would have rather them cut the uh opening mission out of the film and instead we should have had more time of the crew on shore leave you don't really get a sense that they are enjoying themselves that much
1: You know what? It should have started with them on shore leave on the Yorktown and we can establish character, we can really make us care about them and care about the people of the Yorktown and then that all gets interrupted when this escape pod comes in and there's an emergency and the Enterprise is scrambled to intervene. It would get us into the story much faster Uh, and I still think it could have done all the same emotional lifting for Kirk. And it might also have given us time to explore the relationship between Spock and Ohura, Because the giving Spock and Ohura a romantic relationship, I think, is the the best decision that was made for this new Star Trek series. I really enjoy their relationship. But what ticks me off so much about this movie is that we don't get to see their relationship evolve. I mean, frankly, this this movie should have ended with with Ohura proposing to Spock and Spock saying yes.
0: Huh. I, I don't know if I'd want to see them take it that far. But, you know, part of what. Uh, one of the few things I enjoyed of Star Trek Into Darkness is sort of the the flirting and the sparring between her and Spock, and but it's sort so of, it's they, so brief. It, it is brief, and they slam the book on that pretty early on in this film. And while they give an uh, an explanation, uh, you're right. I would have liked to have seen more more back and forth. It's a it's an interesting wrinkle. People can argue. It was in the original series. I don't really agree with that. I mean, you have like a few episodes where there's some, um, especially there's, there's an early episode in season one, I can't recall the name, where Uhura is sinning and stuff and Spock's there at the table playing, you know, there's some sort of closeness between them there. But it, it's a nice wrinkle that when you take it away, it just sort of closes the door on a, a way this um, this alternate timeline of the crew is a bit different. And we could have used a bit more of that.
1: Yeah, it's it, and and that and that really is a shame, especially when it, it raises the complication because there's there's a story beat later on where they need to find out where Ahura is. And Spock just happens to mention that he gave Uhura a keepsake, which is this rare Vulcan mineral that releases a low level of harmless radiation that it, it's, has a unique signature. And that's how they track her. And, and Bones points out, Oh, so you gave your girl, you gave your girlfriend a homing beacon. That's, that's creepy. <laughs> it is, but they remember there's a scene early in the film
0: where she tries to give it back to him and Spock Spock's like a Vulcan cannot, you cannot give a gift back to a Vulcan.
1: Yeah, it's like it is not it's, our custom to, yeah, to accept such a thing. It's, it's you know?
0: set up. I think that line is, is more humorous. Um, but, I mean, so let's go about this. Uh, that When the real story gets started, as you mentioned, yeah. they go to this escape pod.
1: Yeah, and there's, the, there's this, you know, crazy ridge-headed alien in it, uh, and it's not it's a nice makeup effect, and it reveals that she was from, uh, like, a survey mission that was exploring this nebula that's near the Yorktown, and they were attacked on this pl- on this planet, and her crew was taken, she was the only one who escaped. And yeah, that's so... a pretty
0: classic Star Trek thing, you get, you know, oh, yeah. sort of the message from the ship, and it's all garbled, you can't make out what it says.
1: And and so you know the Enterprise is scrambled to do to do a, a rescue mission to rescue what they think are, are peaceful explorers and uh, and there, there uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are that are I'm going to talk about this later but there's a lot of things that are set up as they journey into the nebula to find this planet that doesn't pay off in some really bad ways but Kirk has this has his does his captain he does his announcement to the crew which contains the phrase. Our mission is simple and straightforward. Never, never trust a captain who says a mission is simple and straightforward. <laughs> it's never simple and straightforward, and which is crazy because like that's one of the things I love early on is when when they're uh, when you know Kirk is talking to Scotty and Scotty talks about all the things that could go wrong on the mission, including I mean we we could be captured by a giant green space hand, which is something that happened in the original series, which sure. I love. Yeah, that like um, that I like that these characters are aware of all the crazy shit that happens in Star Trek.
0: Right, it's a big, uh, big world out there in space. You get to, um, but I mean, when we get the the ambush of the Enterprise, for my money, that's my favorite action sequence in the picture. Oh, it's intense! Yeah, it's intense! They... It's exciting! I mean, the effects—I was really to uh, able to admire it more in my second viewing. But it, I mean, everything from like the sound design to the effects to the um, this is where I think Justin Lin's background in doing the, you know, the, some of the fast and furious pictures really pays off because it feels like a, a real damned action sequence. It's exciting. Oh, yeah. You're not sure what's going to happen. The character gets, uh, someone gets kidnapped. It, it's there's so much stuff going on. You feel just as lost as the crew.
1: Well, and, and it's tragic. Cause like, uh, because w- when the, the enterprise gets its systems crippled and Kirk orders the evacuation, they make a point of showing that the, these... Because they're attacked by this swarm of, of blade-shaped fighter craft. Yep. Um All the escape pods get captured by the fighter craft and brought down to the planet. And that's sinister, that they're being taken alive. It really makes you fear for the crew. Although, that being said, I was sort of both angry and sad seeing the Enterprise get dismembered in this scene. The Enterprise mean, they, they itself really do is a, a, a number on the Enterprise. They, they do.
0: And it, it's more so, you think back to the movie Star Trek Generations and how they make such a big deal of the ship crashing, but that that's almost like a rough landing compared to, I mean, this is, <laughs> well, it, it, it is th- almost, it's almost like the scene in RoboCop, right, where they pick RoboCop apart piece by piece.
1: Well, it's the same. It's the same thing for for uh, for Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, where they destroy yes. the Enterprise. In that one, the the death of the Enterprise is given a tremendous amount of weight, and we've seen the Enterprise sustain some real heavy damage in in the previous two Star Trek movies. But this series has absolutely no respect for the Enterprise.
0: I, I think also because it happened so early in the film, and in those uh, previous examples, Star Trek Three and Star Star Trek Generations, it happened so late in the picture. That they don't have time to mourn. They have to, you know, they're all stranded, uh, separated on the planet. They have to figure out where they're going.
1: Well, I mean, the Enterprise is more than a ship. It is also its crew, and I do like that they keep that. You know, they're still a crew, and they still have a mission, even when their ship is is shredded.
0: Right. So as um, as they land on the planet, we get sort of uh, you know, some of the planet is kind of rocky. A lot of it's like in the woods. We get you mentioned. You like how people are split up into different teams. I especially like Spock and Bones being together. Oh,
1: their interplay is phenomenal.
0: Because uh, they they didn't give Bones uh, played in this film by Carl Urban that much to do in Star Trek Into Darkness, but here they give him a lot of good one liners.
1: And uh, he he plays he plays off uh, of yeah. Spock really well. And I also you know like I also like that we get to see him being a doctor. Yes. You know, spouting off medical jargon, doing things to save people's lives. I love that I love that bit. I love that bit cuz like cuz Spock and Bones they they end up on a planet because they end up boarding one of the alien fighter craft and they crash it. And and Spock's been impaled on this, you know, spike of alien metal. And I just love that bit where where you know, Bones is talking about trying to remove it to avoid hemorrhaging. He's like, oh, by the way, Spock, what's your favorite color? Well, like, I have no idea why, and then he just rips the metal out. <laughs> you know, it, it's much easier to do when you're taken by surprise. It's, it's a great bite-the-bullet moment. Although it there's is. a weird throwaway line where, where Bones is like, now, if I'm not mistaken, you Vulcans keep your hearts where humans keep your livers. That is correct, Doctor. Which, I I, I would not let a doctor who says... Now, if I remember correctly, I am not going to let that doctor do a procedure on me. Yeah, it's, although it also um, raises a point: where do Vulcans keep their livers? Do they keep their livers where they keep where we would keep our heart, or is their liver in their neck or someplace?
0: Uh, it's a fair question. Can uh, does alcohol affect Vulcans the
1: same way? What about yes. half
0: humans, half Vulcans?
1: Yeah, that's also a good thing. Right? He's half human, yeah. half Vulcan. So where would sure. that put his various <laughs> organs? <laughs>
0: Perhaps you know McCoy isn't as sure about the anatomy as he thinks he is. Uh, yeah, it's it's a strange moment, but but humorous. I mean that that business is good. We um, unfortunately uh, Chekhov doesn't get a whole lot to do. He's with Kirk.
1: Well, he he sort of he plays support for Kirk, but he doesn't get much of his own to do. He he is he he's Kirk's sidekick. Uh, and,
0: and that's one thing in all three of these you know more recent Star Trek films: the character of Chekhov is given so little to do, and it's, you know, it's not like Chekhov got a whole lot to do in the original series and the old Star Trek movies, but at least in Star Trek Voyage Home, he got his big scene with the nuclear vessels.
1: It's it, it's very true. Like he he gets more to do in this movie than the previous two, but it is still it is still second banana stuff, which 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 is a shame. You know, con- considering the passing of of the actor Anton Yelchin.
0: Right, I think uh, it made me a bit more attuned to what Chekhov was doing in this picture, um, especially seeing it in theater.
1: but uh, but we start but as this as this goes on we're also introduced uh, we're also introduced to the character of Jayla and we start to we start to piece together what's actually going on with crawl and these reptiles now what do you think of Jayla's introduction
0: her introduction is is neat I mean I like that she's established as uh, as being a good fighter I, I love her face makeup I think that's it's very um... It reads very well. You can look at a distance and tell exactly what. You can look at the profile, you know, as they say with character design, and tell exactly who it is.
1: Well, and... it's it's a completely original design that we've never really seen on a Star Trek before in any of its incarnations. And yet, it looks. She looks like an alien that would appear in Star Trek. And I like that it's not overdone, it's not too busy.
0: I think that was my favorite thing about it. It was. Instead of having like a zillion prosthetics, it was just. Um, uh, a very good paint job on the face and with, you know, contrasting the, the white and the black colors and, yeah, very angular, very, very good design. Um, and just her business with Scotty, I mean, I, I I think of how Simon Pegg, who plays Scotty in these pictures, um, also is one of the writers that like to think like he wrote himself a girlfriend for the movie. <laughs> is well, what it comes the... off of. Because he definitely, um, whether he intended to or not, beefs up his part a bit.
1: Oh no it does it does give Scott uh, Scotty a lot to do but I I don't see it as, as him riding himself a girlfriend cuz there's nothing romantic or sexual between them at all. You don't think so? No, I don't.
0: Oh, I, I sort of got a bit of a hint of that but they don't um Yeah, I don't I, I guess it's up to interpretation. It's not something they linger on but that they, uh, especially all the business later with the she listens to the loud music and stuff. I, I think that that stuff's very funny. Well, and, I like well yeah. Done. She's she's
1: listening to was it like uh, Bone Thugs and Harmony uh, uh-huh. fight the power and it just... Yeah. I like the beats and the shouting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's good. But yeah, so so yeah, she she you know saves she saves Scotty from some alien scavengers who are also crashed on the planet. Uh, and then you know she recognizes his uniform and takes him to her house. And it turns out she's living in a crashed Federation starship that's like a hundred years old. Uh, and that she's jury rigged all these different traps and alarms based on technology. She's scavenged from the wreck. Uh, and, you know, that cool thing where like no one's ever found the ship because she set up holographic projectors that make it uh, that make it invisible. And she wants she wants Scott to help her power up the ship and make it fly. You know, um, and it's. It's it's great. I like that she I like that she's got a, she's introduced she she gets to kick a little ass and she has a, she has a goal but also knows that she doesn't have the expertise to accomplish that goal. She needs she needs an ally. That being said, as this movie plays out, she is shown to be so adept with jury rigging technology that I refuse to believe she couldn't have made the ship spaceworthy on her own
0: yeah I mean, on the one hand it, it is nice that you have a, a female character that's an engineer that's pretty unusual uh in movies in general let alone star let alone uh, star trek and but you're right she figures out a lot um as the picture goes on but i I do want to touch on the uh the the
1: ship she's
0: on on the Franklin,
1: which I, I like I, to think is named after Aretha franklin uh yes could be uh
0: R-E-S-P-E-C-T. You know what this spaceship means to me. Um, The, it it is just nice to, it's fun in movies when you see, oh, this is an older version of a spaceship, and this is what used to be considered state-of-the-art. And I I like the clunkiness in all the screens and stuff on on the ship.
1: Yeah, I like that there are no holograms. I like that their transporter runs really, really slow. I like that it's much more angular than the other Federation ships we see.
0: Yeah, it's not as organic looking, not as not as clean. Uh, I like the dirt. I like the grit. It's, that's real fun to see. Um, so we get a lot of business eventually, uh, on, on the planet where Kirk goes to, uh, to do a rescue of Uhura.
1: Well, well, yeah, Kirk, Kirk (laughs) is, uh, you know, eventually Scotty's able to get, uh, you know, well, that's, and that's actually after Kirk and, uh, and Chekhov and the the alien that they rescued go to the crash saucer section because they they finally the alien a uh, crawl is looking for a thing called the Abernath, and apparently that's the weapon fragment from the the intro scene so they go back to the saucer section to go get it uh, there's a fight. They get betrayed by the alien because, of course, she's been working for Crawl the whole time. We get yep. a really cool action sequence, which ends with the saucer section getting flipped over by its by its uh, attitude adjustment jets or rockets or what have you. Uh, and it's that's something, that's something that I I love the way this movie plays with gravity, both in the scene where the Enterprise is attacked in orbit, but also in this scene where people are running up the walls and just taking advantage of the fact that we have artificial gravity and up and down are not always consistent in a crisis. It really makes the scene work for me.
0: It adds a, adds a good dynamic to the scene.
1: Yeah. And, uh, oh, and that's the thing. So I, t- I talked about a lot of things being, being set up early in the movie. So one thing that's set up is that Scotty's alien friend, the oyster-headed guy, uh, he has some disease and it's made his mucus acidic. And it's just kind of thrown off as an as a offhanded line by Bones, but I like that that plays out, because the captured crew are kept in this pen in this alien city, and they make an escape attempt by getting the guy to sneeze on the lock, and his acidic sneeze dissolves <laughs> it.
0: That's a good moment. I think one thing, you know, in, when they're on the planet, when they go to make the rescue of Ahura, for my money, I almost thought that was going to be the end of the movie.
1: It it could have been if it had led to a final showdown with Crawl, but but it, it really doesn't. Uh, it's uh, there. There's still a lot more stuff they end up doing, but I guess I guess we ought to talk uh, talk about that rescue because you know Kirk, Sp- uh, Bones, uh, Spock, uh, McCoy, they all get hooked up on the on the Franklin, and they have this they have this plan to break into the alien facility and rescue the crew, and. Part of this plan involves using a motorcycle that's on the Kelvin. So who, on a deep space exploration mission, packs a functioning mid-20th century gas-powered motorcycle?
0: Remember in the uh, 2009 Star Trek picture... It has... or never mind. Is that a police car? It's not a motorcycle that Kirk... Well, it's, it's a hover
1: cycle that chases a Kirk in, in his stepfather's uh, classic car.
0: But Kirk is driving the car, not the cycle.
1: Yeah, a car he stole okay. from, his fa- from his stepfather's garage. This wasn't something that was part of somebody's luggage for a deep space exploration mission. Never
0: mind. I was going to make the argument that he rode a motorcycle as a kid. but um, Although I think they do have him riding a motorcycle when he shows up to the uh, Federation to enroll. Oh.
1: Oh, no, no, I'm fine with him knowing how to, to pot, f- operate a motorcycle. That's not what I have issue with. I have issue with the fact that this hundred-year-old starship has a gas-powered motorcycle on its manifest.
0: It, it's awfully um, convenient, and the scene like of, the- of Kirk on a motorcycle is a bit goofy but they do a good job of making that action scene and uh, relatively quickly
1: well it's fun and it lets some stuff play off such as Jayla's holographic projectors to make copies of Kirk and yep. that that gas that turns into like solid into a solid that they use that as part of the rescue operation it's it's all it's it's really well done it's just I, I can't help that motorcycle needs some exploration it's not like the hairdryer that Marty McFly has in Back to the Future uh you know, we we can infer where that came from. I cannot, uh, in for the life of me, figure out why that would be, why that would be on the ship. Um, it's just, it's so enough. improbable.
0: Well, maybe they could have had a scene explaining it was uh, they were transporting uh, cargo for a museum on the Yorktown. But, but they weren't. No, I know. I'm no, because they, the, they found it on the they found it on
1: the hundred year old uh, Franklin. Yep. Yep. Ah. Uh, Okay. But yeah, they do they do rescue the they do uh rescue the crew. We do get to see what Crawl's been doing. He he puts the Abernath into this other thing, then puts that thing in a vat of other things and it makes this weapon that just destroys organic matter by releasing this little like like black swarm thing. And we also learn that Crawl drains the life force out of people and mutates.
0: He does. Um which isn't my favorite thing in the world. It, well, I, I don't know.
1: Well, it creates a problem because we now know what crawl looks like. Now we have to get used to crawl having a different appearance. Not a vastly different appearance, but enough of a different appearance that he can get lost with his alien henchmen.
0: Not to mention that, but, um, you know, we also get the scene on, on the Franklin. They, they uh, recover the videos
1: of um, uh, you know, human form. Yeah, that that's when it's it gets revealed that Crawl is in fact a, a, an old Federation captain from the early days of the Federation um, named Balthazar Edison, which sounds like a randomly generated name. It, it sounds about as natural as Malki, Melchior Curie or Kaspar Tesla. That's right. But yeah, and we learned that, that, that the short of it is that that before Starfleet was founded, he 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 fought in World War was it uh, World War Four or World War Three? It was after the eugenics or that was the eugenics wars, whatever it was. He fought he fought in Earth's last big war before the Federation was founded after the advent of warp travel, uh, and that they were doing an exploration mission, fell through a wormhole, crashed on this planet, and he got really bitter and upset that there was no rescue mission. So he decided to use the alien tech as part of a long-term plan to get revenge on the Federation. This is an attempt to give his character some weight, some gravitas, and some motivation, but it just doesn't work for me.
0: It does not work, you know. Not only is it an info dump; it happens far too late in the film yeah. uh, for you to really give a shit. And this uh, is
1: this is and like the the idea that he's a character that believes that struggle and not unity is what makes a people strong. That's that's a grim moral philosophy that this movie could have a great moral argument about uh, because which is one of the things that Star Trek does best. But once we get in, once we learn that he used to be human before the alien tech mutated him. It just makes him seem petty and vindictive. It's not the Federation's fault they got trapped on this planet. It was just random fate. And it's also not the Federation's fault they didn't go back to Earth. He controls a whole goddamn fleet of of, of those <laughs> fractal ships. He could yeah. have gone back to Earth at any goddamn time.
0: I mean, if they he- really wanted us to care about this character, you wouldn't make, uh, thinking about how to restructure this, you would make the first ten minutes of the film... Be about an early mission with uh, Balthazar Edison.
1: Yeah, like have have a character like in Starfleet Academy learning about this mission or 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 something.
0: Or, no, even just like open up with the mission happening. You know, like that that however, could do it too. However long it was ago, and then end with the the transformation start to happening are him going like, oh no, or I don't know something. So that when he's when this reveal is made, it actually has some punch to it. Instead, we're given. Such a big dump of information. It's exhausting. I found it a a bit muddled and difficult to keep track of why this stuff is happening. It doesn't really pay off that much. It just seems like, oh, no, we got to give this villain some sort of a motivation. It would have been better had he been given no motivation.
1: Yeah, yeah, make make him explicable, make him this strange thing from the edge of space that no one could anticipate. But yeah, it doesn't work on so many levels. Cause cause the surviving crew of the Enterprise, with fewer resources, makes the Franklin spaceworthy. So why couldn't this guy, with his motorcycles in storage and his full crew complement, why couldn't they make it spaceworthy having access to a super advanced alien technology? And it's it's just so it, it's just it, it is so it is such a bad turn when all this when all this stuff comes out. And also so I talked more about things that are set up that don't pay off. One of the things that's set off, set up is that when they enter the nebula, that because of the energy distortions in the nebula, all subspace communication is cut off. They will be 100 percent unable to contact Starfleet while they're in the nebula. Well it turns out Crawl's been in contact with Starfleet the whole time and there's no explanation of how that's possible because he's been he's been hacking Starfleet communication satellites. I mean yes, you could argue that he has some advanced piece of alien tech that lets him do this, but that needs to be that needs to be more firmly established.
0: Right, it's too convenient. You're you're delivering the payoff without the setup. It you know it, it's too much information it's it's t- too
1: convenient. It does not
0: work. But we do eventually build to sort of the climax of the film.
1: Yeah, where are his, Crawls uh, plan is to take the uh, this alien super weapon to the Yorktown, wipe out all organic life in in inside, and then turn the Yorktown into his beachhead in which to wipe out the Federation and bring a, and bring back the struggles that he believes will be needed to make humanity strong. Um. And it, it's at this point, like, he doesn't need the alien super weapon. That fleet of, of swarm ships could have been used to take over the Yorktown.
0: It, it's a bit tired. I mean, you know, it's like with every sequel trying to have something more dangerous than what happened before, It's the end is always going to be like, oh, they're going to get rid of Earth. Oh, they're going to get rid of this planet. It didn't need to be that big of a
1: stake. I, I don't know. Well, like, well, it, it would was have just, been... I'm it would have been better if he was taking the super weapon to earth. Cause you can cause like, yeah, I guess you, so. Cause, yeah. Uh, I mean, cause the, the, or another significant planet, because like it would be so easy for those swarm ships to just take out everybody on the, on the Yorktown. Uh, the super weapon he has, it would have worked much better if they had used it to, if he was going to try to, to attack the earth with it, um, to destabilize the Federation. But yeah, and then then of course you know the Enterprise gets gets the uh, the Franklin space worthy, and this is another thing that really bothers me. The film uses the term terminal velocity and escape velocity uh, interchangeably, hmm. and that to get the starship into the air, which they do rightly point out is not designed to operate in an atmosphere, they have to push it off the side of a mountain and get it to drop into into enough speed that it can then use that momentum to fly upward. <laughs>
0: I sort of enjoyed that twistic logic. It was a neat
1: It's thrilling, but it's silly.
0: Yeah. uh, Speaking of silly, how did you feel about the use of sabotage?
1: I, as far as, like, the way it's integrated into the story, I think is ridiculously ham-fisted. And yet, it is tremendously fun. I love the Beastie Boys, and I get so pumped up once that music starts playing, Um but it's, and they but use it is,
0: that in the 2009 Star Trek film.
1: Oh, oh yes, yes. And but it's almost, but it, it is almost too convenient because they, you know, the 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 swarm ships, they're like coordinated. There's like a there's like a signal that's helping them coordinate. So they figure they can throw off the coordination by jamming it with something. And then they decide to use the BC Boys to jam it, which is which is okay. But not only does it jam their their communications, it just makes the ships explode. I guess it's because they're like flying too close to each other and they're ramming into each other but it's you know what it is it's like using the power of rock and roll to change things like like that Patton Oswald bit you know the righteous guitar riff is enough to destroy (laughs) this alien armada oh but this is this is the scene that almost broke Jayla for me because Scotty is trying to hook up the mechanism that's going to broadcast the music and he can't do it the best engineer in Starfleet can't do it and then Jayla says let me do it Plugs one thing into another thing and it works.
0: It's a bit like oh. in, in on the, in the star Wars uh, episode seven force awakens. I know we haven't talked about that film on sequel cast two yet, but listeners it'll be coming eventually when the ninth one comes out. Um, you know, where um, oh, I can't think of her name. What's her name? Uh, is it... uh, Ray. Ray. Yeah. Thank you. Ray is in the cockpit of the millennium Falcon and she just happens to figure out how it all works.
1: Well, it's it's the thing that you know that I, I I can no longer believe that Jayla couldn't get the Kelvin airborne again, right? And and it's just like like I I think that scene would have worked much better if it was her working directly with Scott to make this possible rather than her making Scott look like a chump.
0: And and this whole you know final battle we get eventually between um, Kirk and Crawl, on the. Um... Yorktown i mean yes we get amazing visuals uh, as we just talked about of these tiny um ships turning into fire and you get the rings of fire around the enterprise great visuals there or, i mean not the enterprise whatever the, the um, franklin the franklin yeah, that's the other you know, thing
1: that bothered me the yeah. ship that we get to see do all the cool stuff isn't the enterprise <laughs> that's right
0: but um you know as it lands into the uh you know as, as it crash lands on to Yorktown that's a neat sequence but i mean the the final mano um, mano mano battle between kirk and crawl uh, i think goes on for too long and i just didn't care i don't think crawl is a very good villain it's a shame because idris alba is a good actor but uh, as we discussed at length i don't think the character is set up appropriately and we, we, don't, we don't feel enough for him. And it's, it's very difficult to get villains good in a Star Trek film, let alone a, any kind of a movie in general. It's a
1: well, tough thing to get right. Well, even then, a Star Trek movie doesn't have to have... Like, look at The Voyage Home. Star Trek doesn't have to have an antagonist. You can do a Star Trek movie that's completely character-driven and crisis-driven.
0: I, I guess you could say Star Trek The Motion Picture didn't really have a... Yeah, there wasn't like a fight at the end. That you know, there's it, a moment um... of
1: understanding and reconciliation, which I wish, I mm, I almost yeah. wish this movie had. I I wish, I wish that that you know Kirk could have helped Crawl rediscover his humanity, and I wish that was the way they resolved the conflict. But instead, oh, and, and we do get in just that
0: final, down. yeah, and we do get in the final battle. Crawl's face keeps on mutating back and forth, you know, to look more human. And at, at one point, I thought Crawl was going to sacrifice himself.
1: Yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen him sacrifice himself for his ideal to kind of like live and die by his, his code of conflict. But instead, no, he just gets blasted out into space after getting fe- infected by his own weapon, which is as close to an ironic ending as this film gets. and just, you know, gets disintegrated in space. Um, oh, we do. Although before this, we do get another one of the series signature things, a starship bursting out of a body of water. And and yes. that whole, like, yeah. anti-gravity fight sequence in the atmosphere cube at the very core of uh, Yorktown. It just makes me feel that this whole facility was designed by Galen Urso. That seems like a huge design flaw for this facility. One, one 10 by 10 cube that all the atmospheres <laughs> routed through.
0: It, it gets a bit busy. You know, they have to have something else for the other characters to do, and, and otherwise it just would be Kirk. But the zero gravity Brawl. stuff's cool. Uh-huh. Um... And, you know, in the end, Kirk decides to still be a captain. He, you know, passes on the idea. But I love that we get a... um oh what did they see a picture of the old uh enterprise crew
1: oh yeah i want to i want to talk about this so yeah sure so when they get to the yorktown uh spock's big character moment which should have been his relationship moment with uhura is instead spock getting getting noticed from the vulcan high council that his predecessor the original leonard nimoy spock has passed away and certain of spock's effects have been left to to young spock and it's and it's and it's a it's a very like it's a very well done scene like it is it is it, even even if Leonard Nimoy hadn't passed I think that scene would still be very sad and very emotional but then it turns into a one two punch because we have to be we are reminded of, of of Leonard Nimoy's passing again when 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 young Spock opens up those personal effects and finds a picture of the original Enterprise crew from the old moving movie era. Movie era. Which, like, I, this movie needs either one scene or the other. It does not need both. And I almost wish it was just the first scene, because this series needs to stand on its own. And every time it has such a hardline connection to classic to, to classic Star Trek, it seems to suffer.
0: So that picture of the Star Trek crew, I, I did some research after the film. It's from Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Really? Yeah, which is a bit ironic, because that's not the, the movie Star Trek people... Um, you know, champion. Does, does that mean, uh, that means that,
1: that that photo was directed by William Shatner?
0: Uh, <laughs> sure. Uh, also, I, I liked, I, I did like the, the picture of the crew. And I, I think you're right. They could have been one or the other. I would have just been fine with the picture of the crew. And it made me um tear up a bit, not just because Leonard Nimoy was dead and uh, Anton Yelchin was dead, but you look and you're like, oh my God, there's not that, you know, as, the years pass and people get older there's not much of the original star trek crew with us anymore of uh, the actors and it it struck me like at the time when those film when star trek five came out people were making jokes like look how old they are but now watching you know with the i don't know, 30 years on however long it's been um oh gee longer probably i can't do math it's too early in the morning. Um, <laughs> You know, so many years onward, I look at the picture and go, oh, my God, they're so young. And it was, I don't know, I just, I, I, I like that moment. <laughs> Even though, you're right, at this point, it's been three <laughs> Star Trek movies in this new alternate timeline. Do they have to keep on making callbacks?
1: Yeah, and do you, and do you think anybody's noticed, hey, why do you have a picture of an older version of yourself?
0: <laughs> do you think had, well, here, here's a question, had Leonard Nimoy been alive... Do you think... Oh, never mind, that's a bad question, because he died right before the movie came out. I was going to say, do you think they thought about forcing a cameo from Leonard Nimoy again? I'm Because sure, his appearance in Into Darkness was awfully forced.
1: I am sure it was considered. Uh, okay. And and, <laughs> and and as I understand it, the scenes acknowledging Spock's death were inserted later because of Nimoy's passing. Uh, that I can't believe. Yep. So... No, I do now, I will say say this. I do like I do like our final the final images we see in this after the whole party where the records are closed on the the Franklin and and, you know, Jayla's given her 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 pre-acceptance into the academy. Uh, I do like that we get the Star Trek intro speech. Recited by in turn by every character as we see the Enterprise get reassembled. It's the closest thing to respect that this movie shows for the Enterprise, but that it really gets me pumped up. But did you pay attention to all the crazy space scenery that plays over the first half of the credits? I did not. I thought it was great because like we get all these awesome shots of crazy like planets and space anomalies that presumably the Enterprise is going to investigate after it's done being put back together. But the last thing we see is a giant green space hand. Oh, that's funny! I love that that comes full circle.
0: Good catch. Um, all right, so I mean we
1: we've talked a good amount about Star Trek
0: Beyond. Oh, yeah, yeah. You give this a sequel yes or a sequel no?
1: Okay, I know it sounds like I hated the film, and in fact, yeah. I do not have a high opinion of this film. I I think it's I think it is a bad Star Trek film, and yet it is the most thoroughly entertaining of the bad Star Trek films. So I am going to give it a sequel. Yes. You, uh, you will have a good time. I'll give
0: it a sequel. Yes. I think it's a lot better than Star Trek into darkness. I think going lighter in the tone was the right move, but it has a, um, she, a, a bad villain. On the other hand, you know, the scene with the enterprise being picked apart by those little fractal ships, uh, is perhaps my favorite action moment in the whole Star Trek, uh, film series. Um, mm-hmm. This is not, for my money, this is not as good as the 2009 Star Trek film. But it's, it's closer to it on the scale of quality than Star Trek Into Darkness. I would, say, um, I would say sequel, yes. And in fact, you can jump into this film without watching Star Trek Into Darkness and not miss anything. Um, so before you pitch a sequel, I want to touch on really quick... The um, you had some questions about what are their plans for another Star Trek movie?
1: Yes, yes. I was I was not aware that there was one moving forward.
0: Uh, yeah. So as of um, looking up this article from Slash Film uh, from April 2017, so pretty recent. Uh, Zachary Quinto did uh, an interview on the Today Show to talk about an, uh, some other movie called Ardvark. and when he t- talked about Star Trek, he says um, he's hopeful to do another one. There's no guarantee. Um, the the concept for the and there's a script they've been working on for Star Trek four and I'm just saying hmm. Star Trek four because it's the new series and the concept I'm not crazy about it's supposed to be something involving time travel where Kirk meets his father and of course his father in the 2009 film is played by uh, Chris Hemsworth who later became Thor.
1: Oh, that's right. Huh. Well, I mean, I guess it's in, like it's it's inevitable. I, the, for, the fourth Star Trek movie, I guess you have to do time travel. Time travel shows up a disproportionate amount of the time in I, Star I, Trek. I disagree.
0: Films. I think you know there, there's been so much holding on to what Star Trek was in these three films. Um, I would just want them to let them go and do something new. And I, I would at this point, I would rather see the next Star Trek film be a whole different crew, have it not be linked to any of the past crews, and just huh. do its own thing.
1: That that would be cool. Although I would still I still like these actors and their portrayals of the character enough that I wouldn't mind seeing them do their own thing. I, I feel I I feel like if if they're gonna do, if they're gonna do that. Oh, actually, you know what? I'm gonna save it for pitch a sequel because you've just given me a new idea.
0: There you go. And it, it should be noted. Uh, finally, there's gonna be a new Star Trek TV show. Premiering after much delays. Well, yeah, I'm and, hypothetically,
1: yeah. there's going to be a new Star Trek. TV uh, no, they, show. they've
0: set an official date, September twenty fourth, twenty seventeen, on CBS Star Trek Discovery. It'll be uh, only fifteen episodes, kind of a short season. Oh,
1: that's obnoxious. They're doing it only two
0: separate. A... They're splitting it up into two like mini seasons.
1: And assholes. yeah, and after the premiere, you'll have to have a streaming service you've never heard of to watch the episodes.
0: Um, which we already have because my wife watches some of those crime shows on CBS. Huh. God. Anyway, yay, everyone has their own streaming service. Ugh. Okay, let's do Pitch a Sequel, Thrasher.
1: All right, so here's, here's my, uh, I'm throwing out my original Pitch a Sequel concept, so here's my Pitch a Sequel concept. Um, at this point, I don't think we're going to get a star, uh, star Trek series that stands on its own. So instead, my pitch of sequel is, let's go back and let's take a classic series episode that never reached, that was unable to reach the heights it should have hit, and we make it bigger and we make it better using this cast. So what I am pitching as my sequel is a remake, a better, bigger remake of City on the Edge of Forever, but done with this version of the Enterprise crew.
0: Does that mean more of the crew would go into the past?
1: Y- yes, that's okay. that's one of right. the first big changes. Uh, we are going to split the crew in half, uh, and uh, and half of them, half the crew, are going to go back in time. Half of them are going to be stranded in the alternate timeline. I guess I better. I guess I better explain. Um, this is going to be based on the the classic series episode "City on the Edge of Forever," where while examining while sur- while surveying a planet that used to be home to an extinct civilization, the Enterprise crew finds a time machine and bones who has accidentally injected himself with the psychotropic drug falls into the time machine and does something in the past that prevents the federation from being founded. So they have no ship and no way to get off the planet. So Kirk and Spock travel back in time to intercept bones and try to put right history so that their, their present will still exist. And it's a really good episode. However, uh, A lot of it is undercut because the original script by legendary sci-fi writer Harlan Ellison was rewritten at the last minute by uh, Gene Roddenberry, and a lot of really good ideas were excised. So I'm going to put those really good ideas back. So in this one, it's not Bones making a stupid mistake and traveling back in time that does it. There's There's a crooked member of the Enterprise crew, there is a crooked member of the enterprise crew who has secretly been selling drugs and weapons to primitive civilizations that they contact. And that's how he's making a secret fortune that he wants to retire on. Uh, because he's just, he's the type of greedy asshole that the Federation was supposed to have left behind, but he, he lingered on and he gets caught and he's the one that jumps through the portal trying to escape Federation justice. So Kirk, Spock, Ohura, and, uh, What the hell, Uh, what the hell, Scotty, I want to see Scotty play off of them. They travel back in time to put history right, and they travel back in time to the Great Depression, uh, where it turns out the halfway house where they're living, and this is where the grim morality comes in, the halfway house where they're living is run by this pacifist woman, who it turns out is supposed to die before the outbreak of World War two because if she doesn't die by the outbreak of World War two she becomes enough of a political figure that she de- that she delays the United States entry into the war the atomic bomb is never developed and the Axis powers win and the Federation never goes on to get power so in order for the good future of the Federation to happen, She must be sacrificed, and that's the morality that they wrestle with while also doing fish-out-of-water stuff, where you have post-scarcity people living in one of the most scarce times to be alive, the Great Depression. Meanwhile, in the present, because the timeline's been altered, there's no Federation. But warp travel was still discovered, so instead of Starfleet, you have independent pirate crews raiding planets. And the Enterprise has been mutated into a pirate ship called the Condor that is trying to capture... The crew that have remained in the present, so that's where we see, uh, so we see Uhura and Chekov uh, and and uh, and Sulu. They're fighting for survival aboard this pirate ship, being chased by some of the worst reprobates, reprobates humanity has to offer. And we get some good parallel action where the final scene, where the final scenes where they face off against the captain of the pirate ship, uh, and the final scenes of. Kirk, who's fallen in love with this pacifist woman, is unable to save her from a freak death that's going to that's gonna give us both an exciting and an emotional climax for this film but eventually history is put to rights, uh, everyone returns to the present, and the crooked crewman uh, I, I don't think I'm going to give him a shot at redemption, I don't see him as a redemptive character, he is going to face Federation justice, which will be a merciful form of justice, but justice nonetheless he will pay for his crimes and you know what I'll call that? I'm going to call that Star Trek Forever. There, there
0: you go. Um, and that that title's clever because it references the title of the original episode, City on the Edge
1: of Forever. Uh, and also Batman Forever, and also now, it's about preserving the Federation so that hopefully it can endure forever.
0: And that Star Trek will last forever. It will never be gone from us. Um, I, You know, my pitch a sequel it would take the concept of and I'll stand by it. I don't think they should make another Star Trek movie with this revisiting of the original crew. I'd rather them do something different. So because Star Trek has all these different timelines, I think, what the hell? Why don't we go back to the, uh, the, the normal type, the prime timeline, I guess they call it two after Star Trek, um, nemesis God, that took a while. Hmm. They have so many different Star Trek films, don't they?
1: Well, that was a forgettable one. Unfortunately. Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, And it would be dusting off the old screenplay idea by John Logan, who wrote Star Trek Nemesis. And it was the idea for a planned movie. And it's the idea, it combines, um, from what I understand about the script, it would have combined the crews of Next Generation, DS9, and Voyager
1: to kind of form
0: like a Star Trek-style Justice League to battle a common foe.
1: That would have been damn cool.
0: And... um, it would take that concept i would have them fight the the borg and i would think of some excuse for captain kirk to come and join them and there would be some weird like transporter mishap i think and then kirk ends up on the enterprise and he looks you know, at I the other like captains
1: s- and sees who are you people i would like to see this crew go go toe to toe with the borg that would be tremendously fun and just a fun fan service way right it would
0: be and it would be
1: a a, a way to properly send off those classic
0: series, because, I mean, let's face it, Star Trek Nemesis was not the best Star Trek movie, and it was not a good farewell to the Next Generation crew, not to mention the yeah. DS9 and Voyager. They never got their
1: movies. Yeah, aside from Worf showing up, and I think uh, Robert Picardo having a cameo as the Doctor, and doesn't, correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't Janeway have an off-handed cameo? Janeway has,
0: nemesis? is on a monitor giving a briefing yes. and nemesis or something.
1: That's right.
0: Uh, which is somewhat off, you're like, hey, wait, okay, that... That's sort of forced, but I guess we'll take it. They made
1: her an admiral or something. Right,
0: yeah. Um, So because of that, I think uh, that's what I would do. I would have the common villain be the Borg, because I think they're the iconic, sort of somewhat modern Star Trek villain. And it would, maybe, because you're doing a Justice League trying to make up the stakes, it would be like somehow like the Klingons, the Romulans, and the Borg team up to fight all the Enterprise people. And the, the end would just be complete um like the, the biggest you know spaceship battle uh, imaginable like captain on well, you, captain on captain well
1: you, well, you know what you do turns out the borg have that the borg have infiltrated the romulan empire and the klingon empire they have nanoprobes in the brains of the leaders of those two respective organizations right and are, and are tricking yep. them into going to war with the federation to soften the federation up so the borg can come in and take over all three Yeah, that's what you do. You make it a secret, like who's manipulating mm, things behind the scenes. And then it's revealed. And then the third Borg. act, yeah. it's revealed. Clever. Holy shit! It's the Borg. And what the hell? Q could be there too. Yeah, maybe sure. that's how Spot. Maybe <laughs> that's how this Enterprise crew ends up in the future. Q is like, oh well, the Continuum can't let this happen. What if that's the so final tra- reveal? Q is behind it all. Q is behind the time shift. Yes. You know, that would be fun. I would like to see a Star Trek movie where the time travel is completely inexplicable. And that would, and, is and not that, that way you can get away by saying, like, oh, minute.
0: this is such a forced premise, blah blah blah. And it's like Q just wanted to see what would happen. He's just like moving action figures around on the board.
1: No, it should be it should have more weight than that. Maybe. Q Q can be a dick, but he's not that much of a dick. I don't Remember, know. He doesn't experiment he really, on humanity. You don't think he Q isn't that us. much of a dick that he sent. To... <laughs>
0: The crew would basically be killed and to say like, he, hey, these Borg will kick your ass. There's a lot of stuff. Well, he
1: out. was trying to teach them a lesson. Yes,
0: but that's still uh, I don't agree like, with the way it, he did it, uh, but anyway, you know, I, that was his motivation. Yeah, so that would be my concept and it would be called, um, I would call it Star Trek Ultimatum just because that sounds like a a huh, dorky enough I subtitle. Like um, so yeah, those are some fun ideas and yeah, um, you know, next week on Sequel Cast 2, we'll start our look at a a brief series of movies. We're going to be looking at Fantasia and Fantasia 2000.
1: Oh yeah, back
0: to animation. That's right. Um but uh let's move on to what you're watching. Uh I've watched uh, two things I want to talk about really quickly. I know this episode's running a little bit long. Um one of which it's a new animated series uh, made for Netflix, only four episodes, but it already got renewed for a second season. This is Castlevania.
1: Oh yeah, I saw that too.
0: Um, I only got to see the first episode. I didn't watch the whole thing. It's written by Warren Ellis. Is that right?
1: And you can tell it's a Warren Ellis script.
0: Yep. But, um, you know, originally he wrote the script for a direct-to-video feature for Castlevania that never got made, but then they ended up using his script and expanded upon it uh, for the Netflix show. Hmm. And uh, even from the first episode, which is heavily, all Dracula-focused, really um this takes place in the the timeline of the Nintendo game Castlevania 3 Dracula's Curse which is sort of a, a prequel if you will um but it i mean those early games didn't have much of a plot to begin with so they're sort of making stuff up and i really like it i like how violent it is it reminds me a bit of the vampire anime Hellsing it's
1: it's a dirty show and i really love that about
0: it yeah and it it's um but i i think the animation looks uh Looks pretty neat. I especially like in that first episode and i I have to finish up the other three episodes here. Uh, how you get the visage of Dracula in different forms whether it's a bunch of bats making the silhouette of his face or his face in the fire. Oh but yeah. It's, it's um... Yeah, I, I think it just nails uh, the proper tone for this sort of thing. And yet, I don't think it's too self-serious. What do you think about it?
1: I, I've, I've... I really enjoyed it. I, I was highly skeptical of this uh, of, of this series. I actually didn't know Warren Ellis was was even involved, and in, because I I was planning to to skip this over only because I fall i fallen out of love with anime and just the idea of adapting an old video game franchise into a, into a TV series. It just like nothing about the project seemed all that attractive to me. But my wife turned it on, and then I saw Warren Ellis's name in the opening. I'm like, oh well, I'll give this a shot. And I was thrilled. We ended up watching the whole thing in one night. Well
0: and the opening credits were pretty neat how it uses sort of sketch pencil sketches of the artwork with this dramatic music and yeah, it's
1: it's neat. Oh and did you did you think that Dracula looks a lot like how Dracula looks in Marvel's old Tomb of Dracula comics? Um I mean it's all y- the classic yes. Dracula signifiers turned up to eleven, but that's kinda of where they were both coming he from. He
0: does, but I think also if you look at his um the character sketches, um I don't recall the the artist's name uh, that they did for Symphony in the Night. I mean that version of Dracula very much has the the mustache and the the, the the look to it. What I thought was interesting is when Warren Ellis worked on the script he you know he's not much of a gamer. he didn't really um, but he started googling artwork online and the way he viewed the Castlevania artwork I, I thought was very smart. He said it's like the Japanese took hammer horror films and then sort of put it through their lens. Oh yeah, and I can see that with the when I think of the Hammer uh, Dracula and Frankenstein pictures uh, from the '60s, I think of the ornate costumes and just all the the vivid use of color.
1: Um, and it's it's all there. Yep. Yeah.
0: And, and I, the, I, the, I I love I, the castle, the, the titular Castlevania, if it will, if you will, looks just like the castle from the game, where parts of it are suspended and it doesn't always make
1: sense. Oh, I know, and, and I love that, like, Dracula's Laboratory, like, he has all the equipment from Symphony of the Night. Like, all the... Oh, that's just, cool. Okay, all the yeah. design goobins are right. all in there, but they're functional. I really love that attention to detail.
0: And it also... It, it, there's a bit of... With the violent vampire anime thing, it, it brought to mind a little bit of a Vampire Hunter D hmm. as well.
1: Um, but, yeah, that... Or maybe there'll be a crossover.
0: <laughs> maybe. There's been stranger things. It, it's a shame that uh, Konami, the video game maker behind the castlevania series lately has turned their eyes away from video games and now is just making a lot of pachinko machines um (laughs) under their current ownership uh the other film i saw was something streaming on netflix was looking kind of bored looking for something to watch and we ended up watching masterminds uh, a movie directed by jared hess best known for napoleon dynamite and uh it's the thing is, like, it's based on a true story, and the true story is so much more interesting than kind of the madcap humor of the film itself.
1: That is this about the math professor who, like, gets his whole class to become expert poker players? No, um, I. Oh, I'm thinking of a yeah, different. Yeah,
0: movie. I I can't remember what that one is called, but this is called uh, this masterminds. It, it's based on a, a real story, but they play it for like slapstick, and it has so little to do with the actual story that. I would find a documentary. It makes me want to read a book of the real story.
1: What is the real uh, yeah, story? Yeah, I should
0: yeah. get to that, shouldn't I? Um, in October 97, a, a an armored truck driver, Philip Johnson, he worked for Loomis Fargo and Company, stole uh, just under $18 million cash. He hmm. worked in a small town, and he... Let me look this up. And... Um, no, actually, huh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. That's not as small as I thought, but um, it was they were understaffed, and he, he knew as much, and you know, just seven months earlier, a uh, an armored truck driver had stolen a... Um, Philip Johnson had stolen $18.8 and so he got this guy, uh, David Gant, who's played in the movie by Zach Galifianakis, gets the idea he had to do the same thing for the same company. This guy's not the brightest guy, right? And he... He gets involved by a former co-worker who he has a crush on and the, these other sort of guys on the side. And he flees to uh, Mexico with not that much money. But meanwhile, the, the other people in on the operation moved, they only moved to the next town over and um, spend money like drunken sailors. And they quickly uh. get attention of the FBI and uh, they get what's uh, coming to them. Although, as of even today, uh, you know, $2 million dollars of what was stolen was never tracked down,
1: huh.
0: and so that in itself is a really interesting story about these sort of like, sort of like a hillbilly robbery, that they're just so um, that most of the people are so brazen about it. But meanwhile, you have David Gant, the the driver, the guy who got access to the money to begin with, um, is in Mexico with not that much money, and he's sort of getting paranoid about, and uh, eventually the people put a hit on him. And so there's a lot of interesting things there, and they make it as a very broad comedy. You have a good cast: Zach Galifianakis, Owen Wilson, Kirsten Wig. Um, it's a regular, regular Hangover Part Three. Not just that, but a lot of SNL <laughs> people too: Jason Sudeikis, Leslie Jones, Kate McKinnon, Ernie. So really solid cast, and yet the movie it um it doesn't quite work. Like it, Zach Galifianakis, I think, does the best job here. He does a lot of good pratfall kind of humor stuff. But the real story, I think, is is so interesting, um, especially the the idea that the the Braves of the operation and his wife, uh, who, who's played by Owen Wilson, and uh, I don't recall who plays his wife in the movie. Let's see, Campbell uh, Chambers. Chamber. It's his wife's played by Mary Elizabeth Ellis. I'm not really sure who that is. Um, She's a comedian, I guess. Uh, but and anyway, you know, the, the brains behind the operations spend the money like drunken sailors, like just like one county down from where the robbery happened, and they're like almost immediately reported to the FBI. And yet, because of procedure, it still takes several months for everyone to be arrested and everything. And so, the real story is interesting. The movie eh, is just okay. If you're gonna, you know, Napoleon Dynamite, not the biggest fan of anyway. But uh, my favorite film for uh, my money by Jared Hess is Gentleman Broncos.
1: I still need to see that. Oh, you,
0: you would love that. It's uh, It seems like my kind yeah, of movie down to its a, core. A, a kid science fiction writer that gets knocked off by a popular writer played by Jermaine Clement. It's a, uh, yeah, <laughs> but the story is called Yeast Lords. God. Yeah, no, the Gentleman Broncos is hilarious. Uh, see that if you can. Um. Mastermind's not so much. So what's something you've been watching, Thrasher?
1: Well, as as listeners will know, I am a connoisseur of bad movies, so uh, I uh, recently revisited Plan 9 from Outer Space, which, ah, which okay. yeah. rightly or wrongly, has the reputation of being the worst film ever made. Uh,
0: I would say it's not, but it's not a good movie. But uh, how did it all oh, yeah. Up? Far
1: worse films have come out afterwards. Sure. And the thing I realized on this rewatch is... I think this is the true best worst movie because all the things that make it bad make it bad in this inexplicably entertaining way. Whether it's the hammy performances, the slapdash editing, the odd character choices, the over overwrought yet underwritten dialogue.
0: Have you seen the um, The Room?
1: Yes, yes, I have. that. That's a movie that's... Okay, so Planet 9 from Outer Space, I will class that as so bad it's good. The Room I will class as so bad it's terrible. Okay, fair enough. Like, I can only enjoy it as a weird experiment. I, I just uh, have like, to bring up The
0: Room because that's the sort of most modern-day equivalent I can think of a movie that's just so terrible, people. It's become a huge thing. Um, and I do... It, did you know that James Franco is coming out with a movie on the making of The Room? Oh, based on his uh, book, the book "The Disaster Artist." Uh, yes, yep. So I think that will be quite something. I hope that's as good as Edward was. Um, anyhow, what am I saying? Blah 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 blah. My mind just
1: died. Uh, keep on talking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, but but I guess I guess that's what I've got to say. It's a fun. It's a very fun bad movie, and it's it's. It's just delightful to sort of pick it apart and see all of the seams. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, it's sort of like dissecting a frog while a really ugly frog while it's still alive. It, it is it is an amazing experience. Not that I want anyone to do that to a frog. The frog doesn't deserve that, but the the movie will survive. Uh, will survive its dissection or vivisection, as the as the case may be. I don't know. There's just there's just something. It's like. It's enchantingly bad and, and I'm not even laughing at it anymore. I truly am laughing with it. Uh, you know uh, the choices, even all the most inexplicable things, they are deliberate choices that are being made by the actors and and the director uh, Ed Wood. you know even even if they're bad, baffling you know or mystifying, they're deliberate choices. None of the badness in this movie really happened by accident. Except for Ed Wood just so happening to have unused footage of Bella Lugosi, which is inserted into the film, thus making it a posthumous Bella Lugosi movie.
0: Have you seen much of the other uh, features by Ed Wood?
1: I've seen I've seen several. I've seen uh, the Violent Years. I've seen uh, I've seen uh, A Bride of the Monster, which uh, I. I might even go so far as to say, Bride of the monster might be a little worse than uh, a little worse than Plan Nine from Outer Space, but not nearly as entertaining." Although Bela Lugosi has a great monologue towards the end about how he's a man without a nation and a home, mm. <laughs> it actually is touching coming from him. He he, it's as, he 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 acts as if he believes the words he's saying.
0: Neat. Um. Yeah, I haven't seen um. The uh, um. God, why can't I think? I haven't seen Plan 9 from Outer Space since I was a little kid. I wouldn't mind revisiting
1: it. It's it's very much worth it. And, and if you have trepidations going into it, um, the Riff Tracks version is streaming on certain services. So, oh, you know, if, huh. if you feel like you need some protection, you can watch it that way, too.
0: I would rather see it um, unfettered. I don't know. I think, especially for something like that, you want the awkward pauses.
1: Oh, and the colorized version... I think I like a bit more than the black and white version because it's a whole new layer of crap oh, God. to the movie. It enhances the badness. And they make some really interesting color choices.
0: Uh, I have seen Glenn or Glenda. That's another one I've seen of his.
1: Oh, classic. Snips yeah, and, and snails and, really and do... puppy dog tails. And I do have a fondness for Ed Wood. It, it kind of, you know, goes, it, it's like, it's like that, that Steely Dan song, you know, De- Deacon Blue. Uh, there's a name for the winners in the world, but Ed Wood got a name when he lost. He he has he has earned his place in the Hollywood fir- firmament for for being a part of so many disasters, but still powering through them.
0: Right, and of course the uh, Ed Wood movie directed by Tim Burton is a brilliant um, homage to the director.
1: Oh yeah, very very good film.
0: And I'm looking. In fact, if you're interested in Ed Wood. Uh, you can get uh from Amazon. You can get a used copy of the Ed Wood box for thirty dollars. Contains um,
1: six of his films. Now, do we have an affiliate link people can click on to get that?
0: Uh, I don't, so I'll, I should probably cut this out.
1: Matt, cut this out.
0: <laughs> okay. da da da. God. Okay. So yeah, that's what I've been watching. Yep. 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 Very good. So, yeah, this has been a, a great episode of Sequel Cast 2, if I do say so myself, on Star Trek Beyond and uh, in other things, as we always go into tangents. So, next week on Sequel Cast 2, we'll uh, kick off our look at the Fantasia duology, which consists of Fantasia and Fantasia 2000. Those films are currently streaming in the United States on Netflix. For um, Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. Oh, oh. And this Matt, is Trash Oh, yes. You can follow me on Twitter at M A T W B T. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, at Internet Follow the show on Twitter, at SequelCast2. Uh, look up SequelCast2 on iTunes
1: and leave us a tasty review. Hey, you know you know why we, we screwed up just then? Why? I'm telling y'all, it's sabotage! Oh my, it's a mirage. Telling y'all, it's a sabotage. sabotage. Sabotage, yeah. Peace, we out! Are-
0: Sequelcast Two is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Podcast Fleet. Find another great film and TV podcast at BattleshipPretension.com. The theme song to Sequelcast Two is written and performed by Mark with the Sea. Listen to his music at MarkWithTheSea.com. You can also listen to Sequelcast Two on the go at Stitcher. Head on over to Stitcher.com and search for Sequelcast Two to give it a listen.
1: This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.